Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything, while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. Also those who eat, eat in honor of the Lord. Since they give thanks to God, while those who abstain, abstain in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us will be accountable to God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, Paul is writing here <clears throat> and talking about the weak and the strong. And if you are a vegetarian, you probably have gotten your ire up a little bit hearing that you are the weak, uh, according to Paul. <clears throat> we hear about the weak ones and the strong ones. The weak ones are the ones who eat only vegetables and do not eat meat and do not drink alcohol. The strong ones are the ones who do eat meat and drink alcohol. This could read like an advocacy moment for the Beef Council and Ernest and Julio Gallo. But let me remind you that this was the letter to the Romans. Rome, as it is today, was a great big city, an international city with every ethnicity, every religious faith represented at that time. And because of the wonderful infrastructure of Rome, there were roads leading in and out so people could come and go freely, mostly doing commerce, living there for a while, living there forever. And so you had this great, great diversity there. In the Christian community, you had a great diversity as well. <clears throat> you had people who came from pagan beliefs. You have people who came from no belief. And you have people who came from the Jewish faith. So the Jewish Christians, as they were called, were people who observed certain days. Some hold up certain days as important, others do not. They still acknowledged those Jewish holidays, and they abstained from meat, and they abstained from wine. Then those who were... Right, I want to make sure I didn't accidentally insult the wrong people. I'm probably going to insult everybody by the end of this sermon. Um, because <clears throat> I'm going to talk about country music, but anyway, <laughs> and make an argument in favor of it. 
So you got people who eat meat, you got people who don't eat meat, you got people who drink wine, and you've got people who don't drink wine, all trying to worship together in the same probably household, probably not a beautiful sanctuary like we have now. In this urban environment of pagan Rome, if you went and bought wine, you can probably assume that the merchant from whom you bought it had already had it blessed by some pagan god. So nobody in the congregation would have looked favorably upon that. And these opinions were dividing up the congregation, but as Fred Craddock wrote in his commentary on this passage, one person's opinion is another person's faith. So be careful how you dismiss someone's opinion. To the people who did not drink wine or eat meat, their abstinence was a part of their faith. And to the people who ate and drank everything, their indulgence and welcome and everything in moderation kind of attitude was a part of their faith and their understanding of the world. So both groups of people were trying to get together and worship in the same house. Paul asks them, who are you to judge your brother or sister who comes from a different tradition? Let's all try to get along and remember that meat, vegetables, etc. are less of a concern than is the love of Christ and the mission that we have signed on here for as Christians. You've probably heard yourself saying this inside your head or maybe to your companion as you go to a wedding or a funeral. Tulsa's a biggest, big enough town that you might go to different people's funerals at different churches or different funeral homes and say, well, that's not the way we do it at Boston Avenue. Any wedding you go to is going to be different from the last one you went to, I bet. If you went to one at the Greek Orthodox Church, you'd say, well, that's not the way we do it at Boston Avenue. If you went to one at the temple, you'd say, well, that's not the way we do it at Boston Avenue. If you went to one at the River Spirit Events Center, you'd say, that's not the way we do it at Boston <laughs> Avenue at all. But Tulsa's a big enough city that we have people who belong to all different denominations of religion and are from all different ethnicities. And so who are we to judge what they do at these most sacred juncture times in their lives. We have to watch ourselves when we start saying, well, that's not like what I do, and therefore it's weird, or therefore it's bad. <clears throat> Richard Rohr writes in his daily meditation about ego and being judgmental, the ego seems to find its energy precisely by having something to oppose, to fix, or to change. When the mind can judge something to be inferior, we feel superior. I have a friend who is nine, and I read in the church newsletter this week that this is Foster Care Awareness Sunday, and she's been a part of the foster system and is one of the success stories, I would say, of all of that. She is nine. I am 46. She invited me to Grandparents' Day at her school. <laughs> Not having grandparents here, she invited me and my mother, who was a little, just slightly closer to the expected age range. And when we got to the school, we realized this week it was grandparents and VIPs day. So mom and I are still trying to decide which one was which. <laughs> but over lunch on grandparents and VIPs day, we found out that our nine-year-old friend <clears throat> is about to get two new kittens 
to add to a household that already has a very old cat who's not always in a good mood. So I said, how is your very old cat going to adapt to these two new kittens? And she said, well, I'm going to have a talk with her <clears throat> and I'm going to tell her that one of these days you will die and you will go to kitty heaven and you're gonna have to get along with all the cats up there. <laughs> I could finish there and we could just sing songs for the minutes that remain. I think that's the sermon today. <clears throat> we're not to kitty heaven yet. We're not to human heaven yet, but we're gonna have to figure out how to get along with all types of kitties. Whether they're small or big, or they have the same color fur as we do, whether they have claws or if someone took them off. <clears throat> we're all in this together and we're all moving towards the same goal. We've got to find a way to get along. I am assuming that at least three or four of you tuned in two weeks ago to the Ken Burns documentary that was on PBS, Country Music. They've been advertising it since last spring. I was very excited about it, starting with last spring, and couldn't wait for this particular week on PBS to see what Ken Burns was going to do with the history of country music in the United States of America. As usual, I missed a couple of episodes because <clears throat> we had things going on at the church. So I thought, well, I wonder if I'm gonna have to buy the DVD set to see the ones that I missed out on which I suppose you can get for $99.95 by going to pbs.org. But then I realized they ran it again the following week. They ran the whole thing last Sunday afternoon, and then they ran it on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday. The whole thing was 16 hours long. And at this point, I think you need to go stream it from your computer or with your Roku box or actually buy the DVDs if you want to watch the thing and, and push pause when you need to. You may not know this about my family. If you're a visitor, you don't know anything about me, but those of you who have known me and my family for quite a while may not know that we are huge country music fans. Maybe that doesn't go with the picture that you have of us, of my sister who's a professional musician playing in Broadway pit orchestras, but secretly she loves country music. And secretly, I do too. And not so secretly, my father, who died a month and five days ago, did too. My father built his own record cabinet sometime in the early 60s, and he filled it eventually with a thousand records, give or take a few. As Kathy and I bought our own childhood records, he left us about an inch to put our music in there. <laughs> And I think at the time of their marriage, he gave my mom maybe two inches to put her stuff in there, her classical and um, <clears throat> popular hits of the day. So a lot of pictures of me as a toddler are shown doing toddler things, but in front of this ubiquitous record cabinet with all the records. I have all those records now and I have the cabinet and so every night as I watch television, those records are staring back at me. They're filled with the records of people like Mel Tillis, and Hank Snow, and Hank Williams, Tex Ritter, Gene Autry, Roy Rogers, the Sons of the Pioneers. Back when people really knew how to sing and really knew how to play instruments, these are the phrases that I grew up hearing. 
as you watch Ken Burns' documentary and hear about things starting with the Carter family, moving on through the Hank Williams era, and so on to the present day, you realize that so many of these folks who were the earliest country musicians were extremely poor people. They were people who lived on the margins of society. But in the early 20s, for example, in Hank Williams' birth time, seems like everybody, everybody was poor. Certainly Hank Williams was, who was born in the area around Montgomery, Alabama, which was just a few miles from where my father was born. They were born within a year of each other, both born to people who didn't have a lot of money. Hank Williams' father was shell-shocked, as they called it, from World War I, and he was in a mental institution for most of Hank's childhood life, leaving Hank and his mother alone to fend for themselves financially. Hank dropped out of school and started playing in beer joints, which is probably not what you want for your teenage son. But he learned music from the one African-American in town who knew how to play the guitar. And he went with those three chords and the truth and started entertaining people and making money and realizing he had a good voice and he had a talent for writing songs. I come from people who were of modest means as well, and I, as I watched the history unfold, thanks to Ken Burns, I felt like I was watching the story of my ancestors. I have sharecroppers on both sides of my family. Grandparents and great-grandparents made the best they could of land that they didn't own. Um, my no, my grandmother Venable picked cotton as a teenager. She went all the way through school and became a teacher, but once she married, times were tough, and they moved from town to town looking for better jobs for my grandfather, better rent, and better hope for their children. And I know that they lived in a tent city at one point when my father was about three, lived in the tent city that was accompanying the work, work team, the can't think of the word for it. Anyway, the work team that was building a, uh, building a road from Brookhaven, Mississippi, going west. So my father had some of those things he could pull out of his pocket, like when I was your age, <laughs> we lived in a tent. Too bad about the guest jeans you want. Uh, you're not getting them this time. These people... Uh, like my dad, and then those who played guitar and became famous. Now, my father did play some guitar. At some point, he bought a small-sized Martin guitar, and he learned some sacred music that he would play for us, like Your Cheatin' Heart <laughs> and Frankie and Johnny, which has a very sad ending, that song. These folks knew that music would lift them out of their circumstances and carry them through one more really hard day where happy endings were not guaranteed. So many of these folks remembered tunes that their immigrant ancestors had brought over from the British Isles, from Germany, and where do you think the banjo came from? Africa. So all of these tunes, some of which were learned in little wooden churches in the South and in the North, came from these folks' history, and they were sacred to these people who started out in country music. Poverty was a leveling mechanism, and music was a leveling mechanism for these people who did sit down with people whose skin tone was different and learn from them how to sing the blues, 
how to sing songs about pain and hope and hard work and a life beyond where we are now. The white people embraced the black people, and although in most cases it was the white folks who rose to the stardom later in the century with country music, a lot of what they got was from our African-American roots. So many of these folks, like Merle Haggard a little bit later, came from devastatingly sad situations. He has a sad story. Bill Monroe had a sad story. He had a lazy eye, which hopefully kids wouldn't pick on these days, and hopefully it could be corrected with medical care. But because of that, he was tormented mercilessly. But he learned how to play the mandolin, and he learned how to play it really well from his uncle, Penn. Ricky Skaggs went on to do a whole album called Uncle Penn based on his idol, Bill Monroe's relationship with that uncle who taught him to play instruments and how to sing. Bill Monroe not only had that eye problem, but he also lost his mother when he was 10 and his father shortly after that. Thank goodness for Uncle Penn, who was able to support him and teach him so much that he went on to use to become a big star with a couple of his brothers. Merle Haggard was somebody whose father also died very young, and his anger and grief at that death led him from one juvenile detention center to the next. And it was when he finally was incarcerated at San Quentin Prison that he heard Johnny Cash in a live show that was famously recorded on an album. And he looked up and said, I can play the guitar. Maybe I could get good enough that I could get out of here and quit winding up in places like this. And sure enough, he did. People judged country musicians for so long as dumb, as hayseeds, as people who'd never tried very hard, people who were stuck in poverty and should know better somehow. But as I watched this documentary, and as certainly as I remembered my childhood and the excitement that my father had over any country musician who ever moved to Tulsa or performed in Tulsa or came to my fifth birthday party, and I got time to tell this story. When I got home from preschool and said I had made friends with a little red-haired girl named Esther Sartain, he said, is that Gaylord Sartain's daughter? And I said, yes. By this time, Gaylord Sartain was the funny man on Hee Haw, which we watched every Saturday night, right before we came to church every Sunday morning. Esther Sartain came to my fifth birthday party, and guess who came to pick her up? Gaylord Sartain! He stood on our patio. I thought my father was going to take out paint and paint around his feet just for <laughs> historic preservation. And for years, he would say, you're sitting right where Gaylord Sartain stood, and told jokes for about 15 minutes until he took his daughter home. This was a big deal, and if you ever watched Hee Haw, or the Dolly Parton show, or the Porter Wagner show, or the Johnny Cash show, or the Mandrell, Barbara Mandrell show, which was on for about this long, watched every episode, you knew that the whole hayseed persona was something to make people laugh, but the musicianship was fantastic. Have you ever tried to play the Orange Blossom special on the violin? Well, I haven't, but I know it's really hard. <laughs> it is hard. It is hard, and it took great, great practice and a lot of sacrifice. I'm struck by how those folks on the margins 
finally got to a point where Garth Brooks had the biggest selling album of all time. Tricia Yearwood, who's now his wife, said of his success, I was so glad that somebody with a cowboy hat was finally the top selling artist of all time. One of us, one of us people from Nashville who's, who'd been looked down on, down everybody's nose, who thought we weren't that great. Sure, Hee Haw was not the most politically correct show, and its portrayal of women left something to be desired, but they did have folks who were not white on the show, eventually. And there's a lot of humor that probably we would say was tired and old. But people who just played their hearts out played that way because their hearts were broken, and that's how they knew that they would live to see another day. Their hope in God was woven through so many of those songs. I think of Johnny Cash, whose brother died in a terrible agricultural accident when he was a little boy. His father, who was so angry, said to Johnny, I wish it had been you instead of your brother. You kind of wonder what made him take to drink. I think when your father yells things like that at you, that leaves a wound that's hard to anesthetize in any way. But he promised his mother that he would try to be the best Christian he could because his little brother had said, when I grow up, I want to be a preacher. He never got to do that, so Johnny Cash closed every show with a gospel song. And I bet your grandmother loved to tune in and watch that on TV. Dr. Jackie Lewis is an African-American preacher and author who talks about her vision of God, which is not a male God, it's not a picture of God that probably most in this room have grown up with, but I love what she says about being judgmental. My God, she says, is a black woman with dreadlocks and dark cocoa brown skin. She laughs from her belly and is unashamed to cry. She can rock a whole world to sleep, singing in her contralto voice. Her sighs breathe life into humanity. Her heartbreaks cause eruptions of justice and love. The problem occurs when we project our own characteristics onto God. At our best, we project goodness, power, kindness, and love onto God. At our worst, we create a God who is punitive, angry, judgmental, and harsh. We do this because we are those things, and we think they make us safe. Kathy Matea grew up in West Virginia and made, made it out of being a tour guide at the Nashville Country Music Hall of Fame to great stardom on her own albums. She wrote a song about how short life is called Time Passes By. People pass on. In the drop of a tear, they're gone. Let's love while we can. And do what we like. Let's love while we can because time passes by. Amen.